Welcome to Win the Future, a podcast where we chat with folks who are tackling the most significant challenges our communities face today to make for a better tomorrow. I'm your host, Brett Broster. This is episode number eight. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Win the Future. I'm your host, Brett Broster, and today we have a very special guest in my good friend, Lauren Mahler. Lauren, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. This is exciting. Uh, no, no, thanks for being on. So Lauren is the president of Dealey Mahler Strategies, a communications firm, and we do a lot of work together. But Lauren is also a cybersecurity expert. And today we're going to talk a little bit about the election, which obviously is a bit of a crazy election cycle, and security around electoral infrastructure. So... Lauren, can you talk talk a little bit about the election infrastructure, just kind of broadly? Yeah, sure. So I love this subject because you always go into it and everyone's interested. And of course, we want secure elections and we read all these different headlines. But when you really break down what election security is, it gets even more interesting because you realize how many different layers there are to everything and everything requires different types of protection and different types of security and can be targeted in different ways. So when we talk about the elections, it's important to think of it in a couple of different ways. It's really an election system. When we think about security, we think hacking, targeting a voting machine, and that's just one piece of it. So you have the technical side of the election, which is the, the hard stuff, the technology, the voting machines, the reporting systems, the online software that's calculating this and that. You also have all the people and all the policies that are involved in operating those machines and those systems. And then you have the rest of the electorate, which is actually a pretty big piece of our overall election as well. So it's all it's all of us. It's all of us who aren't directly connected to pushing the buttons and running the machines, but who are invested in and involved in the elections. We cast votes. We care about the outcome. Kind of a big deal to us, too. So when you look at the election from the perspective of the technical side and the human side, if you will, then you realize there are a lot of different ways that you can target an election if you wanted to interfere for adversaries, Russia, China, Iran, whomever wanted to interfere with our elections. They have a lot of different options and a lot of different ways they can go. Um, I always explain it where I take a person, take you, Brett, say I wanted to hurt you. And I didn't care how, I I just wanted to actually cause you pain. This is completely hypothetical, I promise. Okay, great. Today, (laughs) just wanted to cause you pain. What would I target? It would be a really effective move to target your brain, but that's a pretty hard target to actually reach because it's inside your head. It's inside your skull. There are other places that are less well protected that are softer targets that I could probably hit with a lot less effort and probably cause just as much, if not more pain. Election systems are similar to that as well. And in 2016, when we all think of, oh, Russian interference and this and that, everything was soft. Our technical infrastructure was soft. Our software was soft. Our state, local, federal, all the different pieces of our election were soft, as was 
the people side of thing, the disinformation side. You know, people are always going to be a softer target. Um, disinformation, misinformation is always going to find an easier landing site among the population, especially with social media. That kind of goes without saying. But if you look at what we did between 2016 and 2020, we changed so much. DHS really led an amazing effort through the newly formed Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, a thing that nobody in their right mind has ever heard of unless you like jump into and play in this stuff all the time. Amazing acronym. Amazing. I mean, they're usually pretty amazing, but that one's pretty great. And, you know, you you can tell someone who just learned it versus someone who may have been saying it for a while because we all pronounce it differently. (laughs) But CISA coordinated this top down interagency effort from the federal government through the states to local election officials, really empowering secretaries of state, really empowering counties and towns and clerks through grants and money and information sharing to really harden up that side of our election system, to really improve the security both in the physical machines and in the software we're using, but also in training, training the people, providing access to information they hadn't had before, training them on how to spot potential problems before they became bigger issues. All of this made that technical side of our election more secure and more impenetrable than it ever had been before. And it worked because we did the, the very recently former head of CISA, Chris Krebs, even ha- stated as recently as last week that this was the most secure election in our history. Because of this amazing public-private partnership, there were private companies that were brought in to work with all these government officials at all these levels, and it worked. There were no credible instances of unauthorized access to these systems impacting or changing anything, which is great. That's the whole goal. That's the funny part. It, it really is, and it was you know if you're if you're a public-private partnership security geek, this is pretty much as cool as it gets. Yeah, and so obviously there are a lot of instances where uh, this administration has had difficulty working with states. Uh, I think we can point to the coronavirus in that sense. But uh, sure, yep, yep. This seems to be one of those situations where that was not the case, where it was pretty seamless. Can you talk about why that would be? It really is kind of amazing that in such a charged political environment as we're obviously in now. I mean, you you can say it and explain it, but we all know what's going on right now. Even within that environment and where it was two, three, four years ago, this is such a great shining example of bipartisan effort coming together for the greater good. And it really, so, so much of that credit goes to Director Krebs for what he did and the effort that he led at CISA to bring all of these states together. I mean, the structure of our government is not designed to be efficient and lack in bureaucracy. (laughs) We We have states, we have, you know, level of government on level of government on level of government. And at each 
step, people came together and said, "Okay, you know what? We need to do this. This is for the good of the country. This is for the good of democracy. Congress passed bipartisan legislation giving hundreds of millions of dollars in grants to the states in order to shore up their election infrastructure and the people who run that infrastructure. What are some of the states that did well relative to 2016? I think everyone did better than 2016. Okay. In 2016, yeah, I, yay everybody, high five to everybody. <laughs> I think the in 2016, if I remember correctly, there were 21 different states who had their um, online voter registration databases targeted by Russia. So some of them got in, some of them didn't, but you didn't see any of that happen this time because it all got better. And Connecticut is actually an example on that list. Connecticut is a state that received somewhere between five and $10 million. Um, when you combine money that came down for um, through the CARE Act for pandemic response to make the elections safe with the election security money that was given out in grants to make the elections secure, it's somewhere between five and $10 million, I believe that really allowed the system to be more secure, the people to be smarter, and to, to ensure that those systems stayed secure while still managing to execute an election in the middle of a global pandemic when it's not, you know, the huge effort was made to increase absentee ballots and to enable everyone to have access to that in a different way than before. Well, that just adds a whole layer of complication to something that you're trying to secure. The more the more you layer on different steps and different actions that people can take at different times and in different locations, I want to say there were a hundred and something drop boxes for people to submit their ballots around the state that all had to be secured. And that's just one little point of entry into the system. All of that worked. And it, it worked because there was this multi-year, multi-agency effort to bring everybody together. So it was it was quite impressive. Connecticut definitely, you know, along with lots of other states, did it very well. Interesting. Yeah. And I know that based on how our electoral infrastructure here is set up between the secretary of state and town clerks, it seemed to run very seamlessly where, whereas even in the past, we've had seemingly some challenges with that. But Right. Absolutely. And the the. Being able to encourage trust in that system and trust in the result is a huge part of the interference equation. You know, when you're, our adversaries just want to harm our country, harm our democracy, because that's, I mean, look at Russia. They want nothing more than to see us turn on ourselves with disinformation and not trusting results and things like that. And the efforts that went on between the federal government, the secretaries of state, the town clerks, all of that to be transparent and to really just build up trust in the system and in the outcomes, uh, I think writ a really long way towards thwarting that effort. Interesting. So so with that, talking, getting kind of more into the social media side, right? Obviously, there's a lot of disinformation and we um, talk about Russia and you watch things like The Social Dilemma, as everybody's at home, watch a lot of Netflix. Can you talk a little bit about the role that that um, disinformation piece of social media plays into, into this equation? Absolutely. So when you look at ways to interfere with an election, it's 
targeting the systems that we just talked about. It's the technical, the people, all of that. And it's the disinformation side. And, you know, we use pretty interchangeably in everyday disinformation, misinformation. It kind of all just depends on your intent. You know, are you doing it on purpose or are you just not paying attention? <laughs> Either way, whatever your intent is, the goal of when the ultimate goal is to harm the country and to weaken our democracy, weaken our nation, you don't care how you get to that end goal, whether it's through the systems and making people not trust the outcomes or messing with them, or if it's through disinformation, through having people turn on themselves. And in 2016, we saw so much of that coming from foreign adversaries. We saw so much of that coming, and they were one of the most effective ways that they were able to target the electorate, us as people, and target our elections was through the use of social media, was through the creation of accounts or groups or individuals, the amplification across these social media channels of specific information. They were able to really, one of the unique things to me to think about is that it's much more complex and much more effective than just inserting false information into the dialogue and then letting it run rampant through Twitter or Facebook. You know, it's there's a lot more that can be done than just making sure your aunt on Facebook shares a post that's false with, you know, a hundred of her friends who share it with a hundred of their friends. I mean, that happens a lot. Um, a little more for some of us than others, but they were also able to exploit the divisions within our current society. So they were able to target Black Lives Matter groups. They were able to target white supremacist groups. They were able to target the, the racial tension within our country. They were able to target a lot of other divisions and lines, partisan divides between us and play both sides against each other to just increase that sort of acrimony. And social media just makes that so easy, just makes it so easy because information moves so quickly. And it's it's amazing that now I, with Facebook doing this post 2020, each of these social media networks has stopped letting you do political advertising. Yep. Can yep. you talk a little so bit about how that'll help? Yeah, the the political advertising piece is one of the steps that they have taken and that, you know, that can make a difference. Absolutely. It's sort of a every little bit counts theory where every little step makes a difference. You know, Twitter started labeling feeds. Um, Facebook took down a lot of groups that were determined to be inauthentic organizations or accounts. Um, but in 2016, you didn't have any of that. It was just sort of a free for all. For disinformation and things passing around in 2020 what you have seen is a lot less of that coming from foreign sources and a lot more of that coming from domestic sources hmm. it's almost like we're doing their work for them because there is so much misinformation so much um, intentional disinformation coming out from very specific sources domestically who have large followings and very large platforms to amplify. And despite the best efforts of Facebook, Twitter, and others to 
prevent that spread, it still catches on like wildfire when it's what you want to hear. Yeah. And it goes very quickly. So that was one of the interesting changes that we saw this time around is that the majority of that disinformation effort didn't come from foreign sources. It came it came from ourselves. It came from domestic sources. Interesting. So as a Capitol Hill alum, what do you think Congress uh, is doing or maybe should look to do? What would you like to, uh, we'd like to see? Well, I think that in a perfect world, this effort continues so much. There's so much that was built um, in the last four years to get us to this point where we are now. And a lot of that came from Congress coming together and authorizing funding and giving authorities to DHS to be able to do this and to work with the states and to to give them the resources to be able to do these things in a smart way. And I think that we're going to see it. That, to me, is the biggest role for Congress. You know, Congress's role is always for the agencies. Is it authority? Is it money? Or is it just getting out of the way and letting them do their jobs? That's, you know, there's only those three things. It always comes down to that. So as we see ourselves moving forward, I think Congress needs to continue empowering um, DHS through CISA to continue a lot of these partnerships that they've started. A lot of the the partnerships between the federal and the states need to continue and they need to be strengthened. And there's going to be a need for additional funding two years from now, four years from now. And a lot of that starts now. You can't suddenly do it in October and expect to defend something in November. So starting to look ahead to, okay, great, this worked this time. But in, you know, same as with cybersecurity more generally, what somebody, what, what the bad guys tried today and you defend it against tomorrow, they're going to try something new the day after that. So this one worked, but what's coming next? And so being able to have the authority and the resources to stay on top of that and to evolve as that challenge evolves, I think is going to be a, an important role for Congress to play. And everyone's gotten a little bit smarter about what all the words mean and how to put them all together and how to be effective. So continuing to do that and not saying, oh, we did it right once. Now we can take it easy is going to be an important move. Got it. No, that totally makes sense. Well, hey, Laura, we're just going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back, quick commercial break, come back for the second half. Visit ctnumbers.news or follow them at ctnumbers. All right, we're back and from commercial break and we're still here with Lauren Waller, who uh, is blessing us with her presence today and thank you so much for your time. Sure, thanks for having me. Oh my God, our pleasure. So Lauren, can you talk a little bit about still on the federal side? The, I've heard the term cyber command thrown around. Can you talk a little bit about, about what that is? <laughs> that is a great question. So cyber command is the U.S. military's cybersecurity command. It's, it's hard to explain it without saying it's the cyber command. That's why we call it cyber command. Um, so Cyber Command and NSA are both headed up by uh, General Nakasone, and they actually played a very significant role as well in securing the elections this year. There's been a big effort on that front as well. They had a an initiative called Defend Forward, where there were some proactive operations taken um, overseas, and you know they don't talk a lot about details or anything like that, but some of that is 
thought to have been very effective as well in deterring foreign interference in our elections. So it was a great combined effort, maybe not technically. Obviously, DHS wouldn't be crossing that line, but with securing things here at home through um, the CISA effort that Director Krebs led over here, in addition to some of the things that um, NSA and Cyber Command were doing. So a, a lot of that is thought to have worked together to really deter a lot of the foreign interference that we had seen previously. So if we if we take it from there and bring it kind of down to the state side, what do you think states should be doing in municipalities to to further prepare to beat back potential cybersecurity issues? So I think the the states, the municipalities have so many different things that they can be doing and so many things that they are doing, whether we're talking just election security or just in general, securing themselves and their systems more effectively. I think a lot of lessons were learned throughout this election cycle about what kinds of steps, what kinds of security things work in different places, what kinds of partnerships are beneficial, what kinds of information are useful to share. And I think information sharing and putting the resources towards the technical side of security make a big difference. Both training your people as well as securing the actual hardware and software that you use um, across your layer of government. In addition to sharing information among the organizations, that's one of the information sharing is one of the biggest challenges that even private companies and organizations have been trying to overcome in the last, you know, 10, 20 years where we we knew from something as kinetic as 9-11 that sharing information makes us more secure going forward. We can't stay siloed. And the same thing is true in cybersecurity. And those lessons are being incorporated now as well. And this was a huge learning experience for states, municipalities, counties, towns, cities, whatever. Um, it's all different everywhere you go, yeah. but the yeah. lessons are the same. The information sharing, the transparency, those things are still really important um, that you can't expect, you know, a town clerk on one end of Connecticut to be able to 100 percent entirely secure their entire little world if they're not talking to everyone else about what the specific threats are in our region and what the specific um lessons learned are from other people's experiences. So I think a lot of that will continue and should continue at the state and local level. And we'll see a lot of the infrastructure that's previously been built just strengthening even more as we go forward. Well, Lauren, let's talk a little bit about you personally. How did you get into cybersecurity world? Wow. Uh, let's see. So I started out, gosh, almost 20 years ago now working for the federal government, doing national security work um, in DC. So worked on Capitol Hill, worked at the Department of Defense, went over to the NSC, did all kinds of security and communications. And when I moved up here to Connecticut, I was doing corporate communications consulting work for a firm in New York. And I missed it. I, I missed the security piece of the world. And this was in early 2010s-ish, so 2012, 2013, around in there. And I noticed that there was a big gap between the crisis communications work being done by the private sector 
and by crisis communications firms and the need for how a security incident plays out in the cyberspace. That there were very, very few organizations and people who were working at that intersection between security and crisis and companies were starting to see it was right in the era of Target and Home Depot, which seems so quaint and ancient now. Um, (laughs) But back then were really big deals in the corporate world and scared a lot of people about a lot of stuff they, they weren't paying attention to. And so found myself kind of pulled into that nexus between security and crisis and landing in that cyberspace. So launched my own my own work a few years ago, launched my own company to focus on that area and have uh, not found it boring since. With that, going in as we kind of go into this Black Friday, Cyber Monday world of um, of the holiday season, mixed with everybody working from home and, and shopping remotely, are there measures that you'd recommend people take to protect their data? I think that, yes, yes, short <laughs> yeah, answer, perfect. yes. There are, there are a lot of steps that you can do. And when we're talking about personal security and things you're going to do, it's always a balance between the convenience of shopping online, the convenience of being at home, wanting the speed and the quick click and the quick result versus security, which can often add layers and slow that down. So some of the, a couple of the easiest ways that you can still do what you want to do quickly, but be a little more secure about it. Um, Simple, basic password management. Don't use the world's most basic password for all of your financial information. Don't, you know, they talk now, it used to be, well, the longer your password is, the safer it is. And that's not necessarily the case. What now is being seen a little safer is rather than just picking, you know, a word and tacking on a number or picking a word, one of the most common ways that you see a password structured is someone will pick a word that's six to eight letters long. They'll capitalize the first letter. They'll put a symbol in the middle and they'll put a one at the end. That (sighs) takes nanoseconds to crack. Wow. If you're a professional. So... You know, I used to feel all safe because I was like, oh, and I have, you know, this symbol here. And it's like, no, everybody does that. Um, But rather than using a password and using the same one everywhere, use a passphrase. Think of a sentence, whatever it may be. I like broccoli on Mondays. And then come up with the first letter of every word in that sentence and use it as your password with your own mix of numbers and symbols, something something that makes it a little more unique. So passphrases rather than passwords, don't repeat them everywhere you go. Use something, pay a little more attention to the passwords you're using for banks and credit cards and financial institutions, because um, those are some of the ways where, you know, someone cracks into your bank, they can hurt you a lot faster than if someone cracks into your Gap account and gets, you know, access to your sales history. Um so financial institutions, hugely important, passphrases over passwords. And just be careful while you're out and about. I always tell folks public Wi-Fi is not your friend. Public Wi-Fi is not your friend. If you're, you know, not that we're all sitting out in coffee shops all day right now, every day, 
but make sure that the connection you have is secure. It's either your own Wi-Fi at home that you have secured or use cellular data. You know, the Wi-Fi at Starbucks is not where you should be doing your online shopping or, ooh, let me just do a quick check of my balance. Let me, let me check my credit card balance real quick and see if I can go to this next store. Like, don't do that on the Wi-Fi uh, at a coffee shop. So. Well, Lauren, I can't thank you enough. I gotta go change my passwords. So do you have anything else you want to uh, say before we wrap up? No, I I would say this has been great. Thanks for for letting me have a chance to totally geek out on some of these things. We you know get to do it a lot this time of year, but not nearly as often as I would like to. So no, no, I appreciate the chance to do that. And everybody, go out, enjoy the holidays, wear your mask, don't go see all your friends, and uh, change your passwords. Lauren, thank you so much, and thanks everybody to listen for listening to another episode of Win the Future. This is episode eight, and. Together, let's win the future. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Win the Future podcast, sponsored by the strategic communications firm, A Better Campaign. Make sure to visit our website at abettercampaign.com backslash win the future. Please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your friends. Thank you for tuning in. Please tune in again next Thursday for another episode of Win the Future.